What's up, people? I'm Erica, and this is Cocktails and Capitalism, a podcast that pairs crafted beverages with stories distilled from our capitalist hellscape. Today, we'll be talking about Economics for Emancipation, a free online course on capitalism, solidarity, and how we get free. Designed to demystify economics, this course empowers working class folks to start building alternatives to capitalism. It was created by BIPOC radical economists and community organizers through the Center for Economic Democracy and the Center for Popular Economics. Here to speak about this course is Francisco Perez. Francisco is a solidarity economy activist and an assistant professor of economics at the University of Utah. He's a senior economist at the Center for Economic Democracy, which advances visions and practices for a just, sustainable world after capitalism. How are you doing, Francisco? Great. Thanks for having me. So excited to have you here. This this has been a long time coming. So I guess let's just uh, dive into talking about the cocktail first. You folks chose the Cuba Libre cocktail uh, for this episode, and I think that was a fantastic choice. I'd never used it on the show before, so brilliant. And it's made with two ounces of rum, a lime wedge, and Coca-Cola to top. Um, and you can garnish it with a lime wheel. Cheers. Cheers, yeah. Mm, classic flavors altogether, really good. But I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about Cuban rum, since we wanted to use Cuban rum in this recipe, in this cocktail. Um, but there are, for people in America, it's kind of hard to get. So the only real Cuban rum to use is Havana Club. But... This, and this is all from our anti-capitalist bartender, Jesse Torres. He says that, be careful, there's another Havana Club available here in the U.S. that is complete bullshit and should not be purchased. They were able to steal the copyright from the real Havana Club because of how the U.S. deals with and treats Cuba. And about the real Havana Club, Jesse said that, obviously, it's not available here in the U.S., but can be purchased pretty much anywhere else in the world because everyone else doesn't treat Cuba like shit. <laughs> Probitas is a is the next best thing. It's produced by two of my favorite distilleries, he says, Hampton in Jamaica and Foursquare in Barbados. It might be harder to find, but it's a replication of how Cuban rum used to be in the 1920s and 30s and makes the best daiquiris and mojitos. So, yeah, a little bit of context there about Cuban rum. Did you know any of that stuff? Have <laughs> you heard any of that stuff before? Yeah, um, I have. And if I remember correctly, Havana Club is the old Bacardi. So the Bacardi family's rum distillery was uh, nationalized and expropriated um, after the revolution, right? And they then moved to Puerto Rico and um, now continue selling rum in the United States. But, you know, it is, there is, there is a connection, historical connection there. Um, and yes, if any of you uh, live near the Canadian border, um, you are welcome to cross that border and buy real Havana Club. <laughs> yeah. Or the Good Mexican tip. border for that. Yeah, totally. Oh, my gosh. Now I really need to get some. I really want to try it. It's, it's The fact that it's unobtainable here just makes me want it even more. <laughs> uh, now that we've got our drinks, let's dive right into talking about economics for emancipation and some of your background. What got you into this work? Can you tell me a bit about your background and how you became an economist? Yes, great question. So my family is from the Dominican Republic. I grew up in New York City, you know, working class New Yorker. And my parents would take me uh, on trips to visit our extended family in the Dominican Republic. So 
I was aware from a very young age of just global inequality and poverty. Um, we were not rich by any means in New York, but I realized my family in the Dominican Republic was poor. So I always had an interest in economics and trying to understand why that was, why my family was poor, why we had to leave, why we had to migrate to the United States. Um, and then as, as I got older, um, I came to understand that, you know, so first I had a very kind of naive view where I was like, you know, these are economic problems that can be solved by economists, right? So sort of thinking of economics as sort of, of economists as sort of doctors, you know, medical doctors for the economy, right? So you have an economic problem, you call an economist to fix it. And then I realized economics is not that, <laughs> at least not uh, mainstream economics. Mainstream economics is really the language of power, right? It is, it's a justification for why we can't have nice things, right? So if you say we need more affordable housing, um, you know, we should cap rents, for example, right? Rent control. Some economists will pop up and say, well, if you do that, then um, landlords will invest less in the maintenance of their properties. And therefore, you can't do that. You must sort of adhere to the free market solution, right? If I say, you know, why can't I have healthcare? They'll say, well, healthcare when you're young is exploitative because you, you as a, a young, healthy person are subsidizing older, sicker people. And therefore, you don't need universal healthcare. Um, you know, they'll say, you know, if you say, why are we poor? Why are wages so low? Why can't we have a higher minimum wage that's a living wage? Um, some economists will come and say, well, you know, gosh, that sounds really well-intentioned. But if you set the wage, right, the price of, of labor at a price above the market clearing price, then, you know, you will end up with higher unemployment, right? So I, I realized, you know, at first I thought, you know, economists solve economic problems. And then I realized actually economists often uphold a really unjust social order, mm -hmm. right? And I realized we have many smart people on the left, many smart people on team justice, but very few of those people are well-versed in economics, right? So, you know, I love the the quote by, by Joan Robinson, right? The point of studying economics is to not be deceived by economists, mm. right? So I thought- <laughs> Great, I never heard that before. <laughs> me, you know, me and other, you know, other folks um, who are, who are, interested in this stuff are going to kind of take one for the team, study the math, study, you know, this, this, these boring, dry theories and, you know, push back on some of these narratives, right? Um, we, we can have nice things, right? Obviously there are trade-offs. Um, trade-offs is, you know, essential to economics. If you have, if you buy one thing, you cannot buy something else, mm -hmm. but there isn't a, re there is no reason why we can't have affordable housing, living wage jobs, healthcare for everyone, all the nice things. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Can you talk a little bit about the Center for Popular Economics, UMass Amherst, and like working in that field? Tell a little bit of your story, how you got to this point, and the kind of steps there. <laughs> yeah, so once I realized I wanted to study economics, but I didn't want to study the mainstream stuff, right? I remember very clearly taking Economics 101, and the examples I gave were from that semester, right? So my professor at the time, Martin Feldstein, had been the head of uh, Ronald Reagan's Council of Economic Advisors, right? So pretty conservative dude. And he told us, you know, minimum wage laws are bad for workers. Um, rent control laws are bad for tenants. Um, healthcare, uh, universal healthcare is bad for young people. So I, I you know, I walked out of that classroom and was like, I want nothing to do with this. But then uh, I heard, you know, a friend of mine was like, there is a different way to study economics, um, there are these people out there who call themselves radical economists or progressive economists 
or heterodox economists, right? Meaning not orthodox, not mainstream. And these people do talk about power. They do talk about exploitation. They do talk about care work. They do talk about um, the ways that human beings actually relate to one another, right? So in economics, they teach you, you know, kind of a, a, a very narrow, um, you know, very androcentric, I would say, kind of version of human nature, right? Sort of homo economicus. And there are different visions of how people, of how we understand, you know, the economy, which is just our relationships to one another and how we manage our resource flows, right? How we provision for human life. Mm -hmm. So I learned about the Center for Popular Economics Summer Institutes. And then I, and then through that, I learned that, you know, these folks are based at this university in Western Mass, University of Massachusetts and Amherst, which happens to be one of the handful of places where you can study an economics that is critical of capitalism. So, you know, I kept that in the back of my mind for several years. And then once I decided that I really wanted to study economics and really take on these ideas head on, I decided to apply to the University of, uh, of Massachusetts at Amherst and there knew that I was going to, I wanted to become involved with the Center for Popular Economics, which does workshops and trainings with people outside of academia, outside of the ivory tower to try to, to put, you know, useful tools to understand the economy in the hands of um, labor organizers, community organizers, and other social justice activists, right? So the Center for Popular Economics was founded by students, faculty, and alumni at the University of Massachusetts Amherst in 1979, originally working with organized labor, so mainly kind of union stewards. And then sadly, as the labor movement has declined, uh, although hopefully that's reversing itself in recent years, the Center for Popular Economics, CPE, started working with uh, nonprofit-based social justice activists. So I became involved when I got to UMass's campus in 2016 um, and, you know, started doing workshops and, and trainings uh, with activists, especially, you know, there was a big surge of interest uh, in 2016 after uh, Bernie Sanders' presidential election campaign. Um, and then I eventually became director of, of CPE and helped revamp the curriculum about five years ago when I worked we did a workshop with the Dream Defenders, uh, a racial justice group based in Florida that formed after the the racist murder of Trayvon Martin. Mm. Um, and then in 2021, once the pandemic started, we moved most of our trainings online. Yeah, that's that's definitely something I was going to ask you about, just kind of like the trajectory of like how this course came to be. I mean, that's yeah, fascinating that it went from kind of like a an activist boot camp for organizers to all these other incarnations and then through the pandemic going online and becoming more accessible in that way. Yeah, it's a really interesting story. But before we go into that a little bit more, I was hoping, and you kind of touched on it a little bit, but I wanted to just talk a little bit more about like some of the problems with mainstream economics and why there's such a great need for more heterodox a more heterodox approach to economics. Yeah, so to me, the biggest issue is, again, economics works to sort of uphold the social order. And it does this in, in insidious ways, right? So, the, you know, the, if you take economics 101, they'll tell you the, the wage is set by the marginal productivity of labor, right? So what workers contribute is what they get back in wages, right? And the profit rate is set by this thing called the marginal productivity of capital, right? So the capitalists get what they contribute, the workers get what they contribute, and it's all, you know, everyone gets their just desserts, mm -hmm. right? 
which, you know, so that that is why, you know, if you try to in, in, increase wages beyond what the market says, right, what the market says, then bad things happen, right? And, you know, even if you go back to people like Adam Smith and David Ricardo, right, the classical political economists, they all assume that the economy is divided into classes. There are, you know, the upper classes exploit the lower classes. They didn't think that was a problem, right? They, <laughs> they describe this very straight, you know, in, in a very straightforward fashion. And obviously technology and markets influence what wages were, but ultimately they were set by power, right? Mm-hmm. By the bargaining power between workers and capitalists, right? And rents were set by the bargaining power between landlords and tenants, mm-hmm. right? So in many ways, that is the sort of the, the fundamental divide between heterodox and, and more mainstream economics is just how do we determine the distribution, right? Who gets what in our society, right? And the mainstream says people get what they deserve, more or less, right? Mm-hmm. And we say no, people get what, you know, they can what they can bargain for through collective action, through organizing, and based on power, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's you know comes down to class struggle. Um the other major divide, you know, which is related, is this idea of you know, the role of markets. Um, the mainstream says, you know, markets generally work. Um, they do talk about market failure sometimes, but in general, the idea is free markets are best. The government should kind of stay out of it unless there are some exceptional moments when, you know, things do break down. But in general, you know, so the right wing will say those moments are like very rare to not say, you know, never happen. You're kind of Democratic Party kind of aligned economists would say, well, you know, there's a few things where the government should kind of intervene, education, healthcare, the environment, but generally kind of let markets do their thing. Mm-hmm. And radicals say, you know, markets are deeply problematic. They are impersonal. We say markets make strangers, right? People mm-hmm. think of themselves only purely through cash and money and therefore are willing to exploit and neglect one another. Um, And they're chock full of all kinds of market failures, right? So, you know, in terms of the environment, you know, economists talk about externalities, right? Uh, Or third-party costs or spillovers, right? So I buy a car um, from a a car company. They're happy. They make money. I'm happy. I drive off with a car. You know, if it's a gas-powered car, I am then spewing, you know, pollution into the air that affects other people, Mm -hmm. right? And the market is not taking that into account, Right. Similarly, you know, there's positive examples, right? So if I, uh, I'm a college professor, right? You know, our students pay tuition. Supposedly, they're happy. They they're, they get a, an education that allows them to get a better job. The university's happy. It gets tuition revenue. The rest of us also benefit from having a more educated society, mm-hmm. right? So those are instances where the market is not pricing into um, that transaction the 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 benefits or costs on someone else right mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you know your mainstream economists will say well that's you know either a very small issue or something we can manage and your radical economists will say well you know think about the ways that corporations try to to push all kinds of social and environmental costs onto the rest of us right so when a company decides it wants to outsource to Mexico right that the UAW is, is in the middle of a, of a strike right now the big three automakers are threatening, well, we'll just move those plants to Mexico. Good for them, good for their shareholders. What does this do for those communities, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've seen, you know, we have an entire rust belt in this country. And you can think about other market failures like monopoly, right? So there's now a whole debate around the the, the role of market power in, in the current inflation debate and 
big tech, for example, and again, your conservative will say, what's the problem? This is just the free market at work. Google is more competitive. They're more innovative. You know, your Democrat might say, well, you know, we should impose some regulations. And your radical will say, look, we're, our economy is full of monopolies, right? This is, this is much bigger than one or two industries, you know, much bigger than just the last few years worth of inflation, right? So, you know, we take a much, you know, we insist distribution is not based on what people deserve. It's based on power and exploitation. And markets are deeply, deeply problematic. Definitely. I really appreciate you just kind of laying out some of the differences between the heterodox and the orthodox approach to economics. I mean, we're the orthodox approach definitely has a stranglehold in academia, in just like the way that we conceive of economics, you know. Um, But yeah, it's it's so encouraging to learn about these other heterodox programs and learn that like this kind of work is actually being done. I mean, I I had to go to a very specific program because I wanted to study very specific um, kinds of philosophy that philosophy departments in the U.S. don't offer at all. Continental philosophy, which is much more aligned with like social thinking and and you know Marxism and everything like that. So yeah, I I, I see kind of the same thing in the economics field that you can kind of have to go to these little uh, holdouts, little places where you find some people that really, really are trying to think outside of the box and see the actual huge problems in our economic system that orthodox economists are trying to paint over or paint is a good thing. (laughs) And I would argue it's even that kind of ideological policing is even worse in economics because economics, again, is the language of power and has Mm -hmm. a direct tie to policy, right? So I always joke, there's a council of economic advisors at the White House. There's no council of philosophical advisors. There's no council (laughs) of sociological advisors or anthropological advisors, even though those fields also face um, ideological policing to a certain extent. But with economics, it really is, you know, we have a handful of outposts. Uh, I'm proud to be at one of them now, again, the University of Utah. But always under siege and, you know, always kind of an uphill struggle. Hmm. But so glad you're fighting that fight. And can you explain for listeners what the Economics for Emancipation course actually is? And we're going to talk a little bit about the modules, but just kind of lay out for folks what this course is and why why they should be interested in it. So the Economics for Emancipation class, again, originally, as you said, was a week-long in-person kind of boot, you know, economics boot camp for social justice activists. And it takes you from what is an economy, right? So from the very sort of basic kind of foundations, like how, how should we think of our economic relationships to what could a post-capitalist utopia look like, <laughs> right? So it is a way to help demystify economics, right? Most of us, um, you know, if you took economics, um, it was treated as a very kind of intimidating subject. You had to learn a lot of math to understand it. It was very technical. So we, one, we emphasize all of us live the economy. All of us have a sense of what is going on, of, of how we relate to one another you know, in, in economic ways and how that fits into our larger society. And it gives you the tools to understand things like exploitation, things like mm-hmm. racial capitalism. You know, this was all, all of these modules were developed in close conversation with you know, social and economic justice activists who were trying to improve our world and trying to answer the questions that they had, right? Mm-hmm. So the goal of the 
workshop series is to help people understand the economy so that they can start, you know, the, the point is to change the world, right? So obviously then that knowledge alone isn't going to do it, but hopefully educated, knowledgeable people can do that. I think it's really important. I mean, we're talking about how economics is this kind of isolated field that locks people out of it and and makes people feel like they can't access that information. You know, I find that a lot of leftist political economic viewpoints are similar in that they they there's like a really high bar for entry. You have to have read X, Y, and Z, all of these theorists, all of these, you know, radical authors. And if you don't know that stuff, then, you know, you've, you're not even part of the crew. You know, <laughs> like, so I, I think what you're doing is so important because it is really doing that work that leftists don't often do to make this material and make these ideas really accessible and palatable and um, not ivory tower material, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I knew, I was like, if I'm going to do a PhD in economics, it's going to have to be at a place like UMass. And most importantly, I don't want to simply have a conversation with other PhD economists about you know, esoteric topics like the falling rate of profit or something like that. Mm -hmm. The point is to, you know, as, as Malcolm X emphasized, to make it plain, right? To get other people involved, to, you know, get this knowledge out there. Um, so, you know, this is definitely a part of that effort. If you go to economicsremancipation.net, so concretely what we have to offer is a series of videos, a bunch of slides, and a facilitator guide that will help you combine the videos and the Google slides into different activities. It's meant to be participatory. It's meant to be interactive. Uh, this is not a traditional kind of lecture style class. You're not going to sort of sit there and watch a bunch of long YouTube videos with someone, you know, lecturing at you. This is meant for you to get up and, and you know, theoretically you could do it self-guided. It is, it can, it, it mm. does have, we do have a self-guided option, but ideally it would be done as part of a study group. But again, not your traditional study group where you sit down and read you know, Lenin or Marx, um, and try to decipher kind of late 18th, late 19th century, early 20th century writing, but, you know, use, um, different kind of learning modalities, again, role plays, small group discussions, these kinds of things, interactive, uh, slides and videos to discuss these very important issues so we can understand our world better so that we can change it. Mm -hmm. And you've, you've had the chance to, lead a bunch of those in-person discussions and, and groups and um, kind of, would you consider yourself a facilitator in that role when you're? Yes. Okay. Do you want to explain for people what, what the facilitator role is and why that's important to this model? I, I won't say it's a popular education um, program because popular education really requires that we all know each other and be working in a community one, with one another. It's, you know, obviously it's online. So there's a certain kind of impersonal element to it, but it is popular education inspired. Uh, and for those who don't know, popular education comes out of the work of the Brazilian educator, uh, Paulo Freire, who was doing literacy programs with uh, illiterate adults in, in Brazil in the, in the late 60s and early 70s uh, and saw it as a way to um, build socialist movements, right? To build kind of grassroots organizations uh, organizing for socialism. And the idea is, you know, so first... We call ourselves facilitators and not teachers because we want to break down that traditional hierarchy where you have a sort of an all-knowing professor um, that deposits sort of knowledge in the empty brains of their students, right? Freire calls this the banking model of education, right? So we're emphasizing that everyone has something to learn. Everyone has something to teach. You know, 
I facilitate these groups and, and anyone who signs up for to do one of these can become a facilitator, right? It just means you take on the role of organizing the sessions um, and, and kind of guiding them along, but you are not the one sort of lecturing from on high to everyone else who knows nothing. I love that. I I used a very similar model when I, I taught a course called UC in the Bomb when I was an undergraduate student at the UC. Um, and I facilitated that course with another facilitator. Um, but that model really, I found it to be so empowering because you're putting the the material that you're studying at the center of uh, you like, that is the focus. It's not the teacher. You're not just like all focusing on the teacher. You're all coming together to focus on the subject together and help to build shared knowledge together, which um, was such a cool experience to to do that course. Yeah, I, I love that kind of work. Um, as someone who is in a traditional college classroom, uh, I much prefer kind of popular education. Um, the other thing I would add is it is based on people's experiences, right? So you start, mm-hmm. again, with what people know. Um, Mm -hmm. And you help them try to understand their world and make sense of their experiences. Uh, And it's often problem or question posing, right? So Mm -hmm. you don't stay, start with, we are going to learn about alienation today. You start by saying, have you ever been bored at work? Have you ever felt that your work was not your own? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And that, you know, leads people to open up and everyone, you know, people, everyone has had a job in in this capitalist society. I mean, everyone except for a few wealthy capitalists, right? So. (laughs) (laughs) You know, people can can relate. Um, you know, so it 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 really is a way um, I find that's much more effective to get these ideas across than kind of your traditional lecture style classroom. I guess this is a good time to jump into the modules. Um, so this course consists of seven modules, and I was hoping you could kind of offer for our listeners just a brief overview of the topics you f- you folks cover in this course. Of course, so. Module one is kind of the introduction to the economy in the working day. And we begin with, again, what is the economy, which traditionally, you know, when we ask people, what is the economy? They think of, you know, what's reported in the business press, right? So stock markets, you know, unemployment rate, inflation, all of the stuff that shows up in the news, you know, and we try to emphasize that the economy is all the work that we do, right? So the economy, and this comes out of um, Marxist feminist criticisms of, of economics, the economy is how we provision for social life, right? So it's all mm-hmm. the work that we do to take care of each other, to take care of ourselves. Um, we then get into the basic kind of um, Marxist understanding of the commodity, right? So the contradiction between use value and exchange value, which again, a lot of people may not know these words, but they know, they understand these concepts, right? So we talk about mm-hmm. housing and we say, you know, what happens when you treat housing like shelter? And what happens when you treat housing like a financial asset, right? Mm-hmm. That people then, you know, what happens when you live in a society where developers don't build housing because they want to house people, but because they want to make profit. Yeah. And then we use that as an entry point to get into the ideas of the anthropologist, uh, the anarchist anthropologist, David Graeber. And we talk about the three forms of exchange, right? So we're used to thinking mm-hmm. about the commodity form, right? Which is we buy and sell things to one another. Right, that's capitalism. Everything is made to be sold for profit, mm-hmm. but that's not the only way things work, even in our society today. Right, so even in our hyper-capitalist society, we have examples of communal exchange. Right, so David Graeber gives the example, maybe a bit outdated now, but when you would stand out outside and ask someone for a cigarette, they often, you know, they 
typically wouldn't charge you, right? If you went to yeah. <laughs> a family barbecue, um, when your cousin hands you a, 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 a hamburger or a veggie burger, they're not charging you for that hamburger <laughs> or a veggie burger, right? It would Hope be not. ridiculous. Yeah. And then we also have sort of command forms, right? Sort of very hierarchical forms of exchange where one group of high status of low status people does work for higher status people based on a traditional hierarchy, right? And the best example there is just patriarchy, right? So my mom cooked for my dad. You know, my mom didn't charge my dad for it. It wasn't a commodity exchange, mm -hmm. but she was expected to do it because as his wife, she was his social inferior and that's what wives do, right? So we talk about how our society, we still see the command principle, we still see the communal principle, and we see plenty of commodity exchange, right? And you can think of how one good or item can, ex can exist as all three, right? So mm -hmm. I can buy food at, at you know, a supermarket, it's a commodity. I cook it at home for you know, my uh, husband and, and kids, right? And, and maybe when I cook for, you know, if you're a woman cooking for your, for your husband, it is a, it's a command form of exchange. But if you're cooking for your children, you're cooking for your friends, it might be more communal, mm -hmm. right? And then mm -hmm. we talk about surplus value, right? So, you know, kind of Marxism 101, right? The where what what is the root of profit, which is exploitation, right? We talk about the distinction between absolute versus relative surplus value. So absolute surplus value is when you simply force someone to work longer or more intensely, right? So mm -hmm. sort of brute force extend the working day um, in one way or another. Whereas relative surplus value is replacing workers with machines, right? To make the worker more productive, right? So that's sort of the magic of capitalism. That is why capitalism is technologically dynamic. You know, this mm -hmm. is why to put it in kind of internet meme terms, you know, capitalism brought you the iPhone. Yeah. Um, and then we talk about social reproduction, right? So we try to maintain that feminist lens and talk about, some, you know, the way, the work that we do again to reproduce ourselves, right? The the work that we need to do to, to sleep and eat and take care of ourselves and heal ourselves. And then the work of reproducing our families and communities, right? So I take care of my kids. I might take care of elderly members of my family or community. And then the way that capitalism it's, as a whole reproduces itself, right? So that we, so that tomorrow will be a capitalist society and the day after will also you know, still be capitalism. Mm -hmm. And then module two gets into how capitalism itself works. So we talk about the circuit of capital, right? Which is a basic Marxist concept, right? So if anyone remembers MCM Prime, but again, even if you've never heard uh, of those terms, anyone who's ever worked for or ran a small business knows you need some money, you use that money, right? That capital to hire people to buy um, the inputs that you need to, to make something. You put mm -hmm. those things into production, right? So say you work at a coffee shop, right? You buy... Um, the coffee beans and the coffee grinder and the sugar and the milk and the table and the chairs, you hire workers, you know, the workers combine with those machines to make coffee and serve it to people. And then at the end, you hope to end up with more money than what you started. And we use the circuit of capital to talk about the history of racial capitalism, to talk about how the, the most important, the first, and one of the initial and kind of most important circuits of capital was the circuit of um, sugar, right? Which is why, mm. uh, partly why we suggested a Cuba Libre for, for today's cocktail. <laughs> uh -huh. um, so, you know, we talk about the triangular trade, the combination of stolen Native American land, stolen and enslaved African labor with European capital in places like the Caribbean uh, that were then turned into sugar, which was one of the world's first major international commodities, right? Mm -hmm. And then from there, we transitioned to 
the history of cotton capital, right? So how the first, um, how the rise of industrial capitalism, right? The very first factory workers were often women and children in Northern England in the area around Manchester who were turning cotton grown by enslaved Africans in the U.S. South into yarn uh, and thread and then weaving that yarn and thread into cloth, right? Mm -hmm. And we talk about uh, the different kinds of capitalists, right? So the different ways that capitalists make their money. There are capitalists who make money by making things, industrial capitalists, right? So the people who make your car or your laptop or your coffee, uh, financial capitalists, right? People who make money by lending money, commercial capitalists, right? So think about, you know, capitalists like the like Jeff Bezos, you know, Amazon, Walmart, right? They don't necessarily produce things. They buy them wholesale and sell them to you retail. Mm-hmm. And then finally, landlords, right? So people who, who make money by charging you rent. Mm-hmm. Module three covers the kind of redistribution recognition paradox, uh, which comes out of the work of the feminist philosopher Nancy Fraser, right? So there we use that to talk about the dialectics of race and class or race and gender, where we need both kind of the redistribution of wealth and resources and income, as well as greater representation for women and people of color and queer folks in business and academia and the government and media, right? So this is our way of talking about kind of the traditional socialist politics of redistribution, healthcare for all, housing for all, employment for all, right? These are all kind of universal for all type programs mm-hmm. with, you know, what's come to be known as identity politics. Module four is one of my favorites. It talks about the different economic systems that have existed, right? The different things that have been called socialism, right? That's so we're we talking socialism like Sweden, right? Sort of social democracy. Are we talking socialism like the Soviet Union, um, mm-hmm. which you know, we call central planning? Uh, and then other flavors of socialism that people have more likely to you know, not really have heard of, like market socialism, so socialism like Yugoslavia, or do we mean socialism like you know, some as yet untried form of democratic planning where there, the economy is planned, but we all get together to vote on it, right? So mm-hmm. that that module came out of our frustrations with the way, the very confusing and contradictory ways that people were talking about socialism yeah. following the, the 2016 and 2020 presidential runs by Bernie. Module five helps people understand the evolution of the U.S. economy, right? So from a kind of free market liberalism in the 19th century to the New Deal era, kind of what our version of social democracy, right? So Social Security, um, the Wagner Act, which legalized unions, the Social Security Act, which created, you know, old age pensions, disability payments, et cetera. And then the, the kind of neoliberal turn, right? The Reagan revolution of the 1980s that brought us back to that kind of free market fundamentalism. Um, mm-hmm. Module six helps people understand fiscal and monetary policy, Right. So basic definitions and then the two major kind of political approaches. Right. So do you think the goal of the economy should be to keep prices low, even at the cost of high unemployment? Or do you think we should be pushing for full employment and and inflation is secondary? Um, And then the last module gets into, you know, how do we get there? Right. So we used to stop at fiscal and monetary policy. Then people were like, Okay, you know, you told me that capitalism sucks. You told me how to get this <laughs> utopia, but like, how do we get there, right? Like, yeah. So we so we added a module on revolutionary strategies, right? The different ways that people historically have tried to change the world, mm-hmm. uh, and there we use the work of the Marxist sociologist Eric Olin Wright, 
Although other people have also come up with similar typologies. And we say, you know, the three ways to change a system are you can tame it, right? You can try to reform it. You can try to smash it, which is sort of the old Leninist revolutionary strategy, right? You storm the winter palace, you <laughs> overthrow capitalism, and then you replace it with something else, hopefully. Or the, the kind of, you can try to escape it, right? So sort of hmm. the idea that we can build alternatives in the here and now. We've we realized in doing these workshops that that was a bit too abstract for people. So we teach it now through um, the lens of, of 19th century abolitionism, right? So the, the attempts by um, Black folks to free themselves from slavery in the 19th century. So obviously you could try to reform slavery and make it kind of kinder and gentler. It obviously sounds ridiculous, which is why we use that yeah. example. <laughs> yeah. You could try to escape, right? There were plenty of maroon communities and maroons um, mm. who fled slavery. Or you could try to organize a revolt, right? You could try to smash the slave system, uh, which proved very difficult, right? Haiti is arguably the only successful slave rebellion. Uh, and then we and then we end with a discussion on the solidarity economy, right? So mm. efforts by people in the here and now to build alternatives to capitalism. And on that note, since you are, a, you know, a solidarity economy activist, that's a concept that I have not explored on my show yet. And it's a really important one. So I would love it if you could just like introduce for folks what that even refers to. So to me, it's tied to the idea of democratic planning that I mentioned earlier. So it's, you know, I like to describe it as economic democracy, right? So we have political democracy where you vote for your political bosses, your, you know, your mayor, your governor, your council members, Congress people, all of that. Um, but your workplace is a dictatorship, right? You do not typically vote for your boss. Um, if you are a renter, um, your home is also a dictatorship. You don't vote for your landlord. So how can we expand democracy beyond the very narrow kind of political sphere, right? Where you know, ultimately we spend most of our day at work, we live where we live, right? So you could argue these are more important places to democratize. So I try to describe solidarity economy as um, democratic workplaces, democratic housing and land, democratizing finance, and then ultimately mm -hmm. democratizing our government, right? So democratic workplaces usually mean some form of worker co-op. Um, this could take very different forms. It could be you know, but the, the general principle is give workers a say on the job, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, democratic housing, uh, we, we see now as sort of community land trust. Uh, and that was actually my first introduction to all of this. So I grew up in a limited equity housing co-op in New York. I didn't realize that until my neighborhood started to gentrify yeah. and all of my neighbors were displaced. And then I realized how come we haven't been forced to leave? And it's wow, because yeah. we own our building. <laughs> right? Amazing. <laughs> My parents were originally squatters, which is hard to believe that in New York wow. you could actually, you know, in the late seventies when they arrived, you could just walk into apartment and into empty wow. apartments and empty mm -hmm. apartment buildings. Um, the city eventually had a bunch of these, and they decided to turn them over to their residents because it was a huge administrative headache. So mm -hmm. we own the building collectively, and we manage it collectively, right? We um, vote for a management board that then runs the building. Hmm. Not perfect. There's lots of issues with this model. You know, in reality, there's all kinds, you know, reality is messy, but in principle, yeah. uh, it works. And, and in reality, it works. Honestly, it's kept me and my family in a very wealthy part of New York, you know, wow. in an affordable place to live. Uh, wow. The catch is it's limited equity, so we cannot sell it at market rate. Hmm. Right? I think currently 
our three-bedroom apartment in the Upper West Side is capped at something like $400,000 or half a million dollars. Market rate would be in the millions. But it means that we have an affordable place to live. My mom pays less than $1,000 in rent because that is what it costs to maintain the building, right? Like (laughs) maintenance costs, not, you know, not the exorbitant rents that these landlords are charging. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have examples of democratic housing and land, um, democratizing finance. So that I can, you know, point there to examples like credit unions, um, which are, again, are groups of people, you know, pulling their savings and voting for who runs the institution. There are now um, attempts to build new experiments in this area, like the Boston Ujima project, where, you know, the easiest way to describe that is, you know, what if the community, what if your neighbors were the loan officer, right? So right now, if you go to, to a bank to ask for a loan for, to build a small business, um, there's, you know, an employee at Bank of America or JP Morgan Chase who can deny you based on whatever criteria they use. What if that, instead of that person, you were approaching your neighbors, right? Who then could lend you, you know, their savings, the community's money, and and dictate the terms, right? What's the interest rate? What's the repayment period, et cetera? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, democratizing our government um, really means more direct democracy, right? So there are lots of experiments historically with participatory budgeting, where instead of the budget being decided in some, you know, stereotypical smoke-filled room where, you know, mm-hmm. politicians and lobbyists and donors cut all kinds of deals behind the scenes. Yeah. We, the people, would vote directly on where our public money went, right? So yeah. solidarity economy means democratizing our workplaces, democratizing our housing, democratizing our financing, and democratizing our government. That's that's really well framed for folks to understand what that means. Even in my own understanding of it, I didn't realize how much democratization was key to all of this, just making making everything democratic. Um, that's incredible. Why do you think it's really important for organizers and everyday people to have access to Economics 101 from a perspective that is actually critical of capitalism? Again, our curriculum aims to demystify economics, right? So economics is the language of power. So when housing rights activists push for affordable housing, they get these sort of standard economic narratives back about why um, we can't afford affordable housing, right? Uh, Why we can't afford to pay people a living wage, right? So you're seeing this now with the UAW strike and and the SAG-AFTRA strike and, and, and others, right? So we want, you know, people often are intimidated by these arguments, by the language of economics. So we want to empower people. We want them to feel confident in saying and pushing back and being like, no, we can have a different kind of economy. This is not how things have to work, right? So often we naturalize the economy, right? We naturalize the economic system we have now. We assumed this is all there ever has been. This is all there ever will be, right? So when we go through the history and say, look, America used to be more social democratic two generations ago, right? Um, We've gone backwards on some of these things, right? The banks used to be more heavily regulated. Workers, you know, unions used to be more powerful, right? So these aren't things that can't happen, have never happened. This, you know, this is within living memory of many of the people in our communities, right? So we want to help people be like, you don't have to fall for it, right? You Mm -hmm. don't have to be intimidated. You don't have to be like, oh, oh gosh, I don't know, right? So Mm -hmm. the point is to be like, you understand a lot of this stuff already, And what you don't understand, you can learn and you can push back against these narratives and we can win. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's so important. And I love that you are affirming for people that this knowledge isn't with outside of the realm of accessibility. It's not like something that's beyond them. It's it's knowledge that like they already have kind of intuitively um, a, a sense for or have experienced through their direct relationships in the workplace, in their home life, emphasizing that it is something that people already in some ways know is so empowering because it's, it's, it's saying that, yeah, this is not beyond you. You can reach out and grab this or, you know, it's already there within you. And I had a professor who, uh, you know, kind of laid the groundwork for me to dive into political economic theory. And he was always saying this and it, it always boggled my mind. Why are you telling these young folks that they already know this uh, when it's so, it felt so out of reach, but I realized that these things that he was covering were so important and also that I could learn them very easily and that, yeah, it wasn't foreign to me. It wasn't, um, I wasn't alienated from this knowledge, you know? That and, you know, some of the things are, aren't quite as intuitive, right? So I talk, I'm, I'm in, I study monetary policy and money system, monetary systems. And a lot of times, you know, when we, when we go through how fiscal and monetary policy work, people realize like actually we're, we could make more radical demands, right? Mm. So for example, during the early part of the pandemic, you know, a lot of people did not receive their stimulus checks or receive them very late because they didn't have bank accounts. And I would tell people, mm. you know, right now, regular citizens can't have bank accounts at the Federal Reserve, but there's no reason we can't, right? Like huh. we can change those laws and then the Fed, you know, all of us would be banked and the Fed can create money out of thin air, which is also mind blowing to people yeah. and be like, and they could just magically create that money and put it in your account. You know, in principle, this is possible. Um, and then, you know, at taking a, a similar example, when the Federal Reserve said we are going to buy a bunch of corporate bonds, um, they also could have bought a bunch of municipal bonds. Right. So they decided mm -hmm. who, you know, basically who had access to the magic money tree. Right. And it was major corporations. Um, but they made the programs, to, you know, the municipal lending programs much more stringent, right? Because they mm -hmm. didn't want to bail out cities and, and state governments, right? So we have to talk, you know, it's also important to think, you know, for people to understand the politics behind this, right? It's presented in a very kind of neutral, technical fashion. The Fed sets up these lending facilities. People are like, what the hell does that mean? What are they doing? And in reality, what they're doing is they're, they're, they're giving money away to some people and not, not giving money away to others, right? And if people mm -hmm. understood that then they would be riled up and they would ratchet up their political demands. Yeah. Yeah. And that's definitely important to emphasize that if you learn more, you can actually realize the things <laughs> that you can ask for, you know? So how has this curriculum been used by organizations and grassroots groups and, and kind of what is the broader impact that you would like this course to have? So, you know, we, the reason we put this online is because there were too many demands on our time, right? We had lots of requests from groups all around the country saying, you know, can you come and do this, wow. this sort of boot camp with us? And, you know, ultimately we're like, well, we can't clone ourselves, <laughs> but we could make it publicly available and let people kind of do it on their own. So we launched it a few months ago in April and have been hearing just amazing stories from people in the field who are like, hey, you know, I downloaded the, the facilitator guide and have been going through it with my comrades in Atlanta or in Hartford, uh, or in Richmond, right? And like, <laughs> people are using it, right? They're going Amazing. through it at their own pace. Um, you know, 
going through the sections they 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 are interested in, right? So we we've been hearing from you know different groups of people just saying like you know thank you for this resource. We just finished module two or we just finished module four and learned so much. We have these questions, right? So and that's you know that's ultimately what we want is for people yeah. to follow along with their with their comrades with with their community members and learn this material so they they can be more effective organizers, right? So, um, you know, this is a form of political education, uh, which mm-hmm. is not an end in itself. Again, the, the goal is to change the world. So hopefully, you know, the, this this knowledge has proven useful to those folks who've, who've um, tried to organize their own study groups. I came across the phrase, I think it was learning into action. Uh, yes. is, is that Yeah, I love that, um, that this program is all about trying to direct your learning towards actually plugging into the world where you can actually make a difference. You can start organizing with folks in your community. Um, I think that's so, so great. And, and, you know, one of the reasons why I left academia is because it lacked that component specifically, you know, the, uh, of actually going out into the world and making a difference and it was too abstract. So the fact that you're taking these abstract ideas and then showing people, oh, there's a, a way to actually act on these things here and now, that's beautiful. I love that. Yeah. So we say learning into action or study into action, right? So ah, the, yes. the, the goal is, you know, you're not supposed to, and then, you know, we're still doing these workshops um, ourselves using these materials and Mm -hmm. there we prioritize people who are part of organized groups, right? So, you know, as long as we understand, you know, as long as this knowledge doesn't just remain in your head, uh, as long as it is part of a, of a, of a program of study, you know, studying into action, right? So you're studying Mm -hmm. with the goal of moving the ball forward on some kind of campaign, some kind of action, um, you know, because again, knowledge itself is not power. Yeah. Unlike the phrase that we're so used to saying and hearing. (laughs) Before we close out, is there anything else that you would like to emphasize for listeners about this course um, and anything else that you think it would be really important for them to know um, to get them excited about what you folks are doing? You know, the only thing I would emphasize is, you know, we want people to use it and we would love to get your feedback, right? So again, this Mm. course was developed in an attempt to answer the questions that people you know, labor, community, tenant organizers had about the economy, right? About how they could counter these narratives, about how they could, you know, push forward their own uh, policies that would be better, uh, you know, how to think about, you know, the transition out of capitalism, et cetera. So we would love to hear, you know, that's the one thing that is missing from this sort of online format is we Mm. don't get that kind of direct feedback. So, you know, I would really encourage people, download the materials, Use them and then let us know what is useful and what is not, right? And what questions you still have. And how would they let you folks know? Is that through email, through So if through you go on the media? website, we, we have a, um, a a feedback form and our mm, um, nice. We have an uh, we have an, an email address there listed. So you can, you know, feel free to email us. Uh, you can also um, follow us on social media. So I'm at Blatonomics. Um and then we are at the Center for Economic Democracy and the Center for Popular Economics. So, you know, you can email us um, through the website or you can just hit us up on socials. Nice. <laughs> and how do we plug folks into actually taking part in this course? How can people sign up and, and get involved? 
So everything is on the website, www.economics4, like the number four, emancipation.net. Uh, everything is available for free download. Um, the video playlists are all there. The slides are all there. The facilitator guide, whether you're doing it by yourself or in a group, is all there. The email mm-hmm. address at which you can reach us is all there. So everything you need is at www.economicsforemancipation.net, and we would love to hear from you. Amazing. That's perfect. Well, thank you so much, Francisco. This has been so wonderful, and I really, really appreciate that you are doing all this work to make the field of economics accessible for people and to help plug people in and empower them to start making a difference in their economic universe that they're born into, you know? Um, it's it's so important, especially because, yeah, as we mentioned, it's very easy to feel locked out of these discussions and like, it, you know, these this is the realm of a few uh, people in academia, a few economists that are just kind of talking behind closed doors and making plans. But no, we have to um, kind of take ownership of our economic reality. And part of doing that is just understanding some of the basics. So I deeply appreciate you laying these things out for people in such a clear and truly accessible way. No, thank you for the opportunity to talk to you and your listeners today and for sharing a with me. Oh my God, of course. (laughs) This has been so much fun. Hey, everyone. Thank you all for tuning into this episode. If you value the work that we're doing, we would deeply appreciate your support. This project involves a huge amount of research, networking, content creation, and editing. You can lend a hand by giving us a rating and writing a review, or you can contribute financially by signing up on Patreon. To all of our existing patrons, thank you so goddamn much. Your support makes a huge difference for this anti-capitalist project. Much love to you all. Cheers and solidarity.